Please take your Bible and turn with me tonight to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Psalm of David. Let's hear the Lord's word, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. And God will add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. Let's seek the Lord for a moment. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we come to the word of life. We know this book is not dead, but so much alive. For it is God-breathed will always be alive with the power of God himself. And we ask thee now that we will experience something of the power of the word of the Lord. Thou wilt quicken us. Thou wilt enable us to see and to see ourselves in the mirror of thy word. And Lord, thou wilt give us that understanding, not, not as the, the mule or the horse that need bit and bridle to be pulled this way or that. Thou hast promised that thou wilt guide us with thine eye. And we pray, Lord, tonight thou wilt guide us through this passage. Guide us into the way of truth, the way of life, the way of joy. And that when all is said and done, we'll have that same desire of David to say, Shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen and amen. One of the most uplifting and thought-provoking truths that is found throughout Scripture is that God made man to be happy, not sad, not miserable, but happy. To be sure now, God made man to glorify him by reflecting his glory in every department of his life. That's what it means to glorify God, to reflect God in every department, his glory uh, in every department of life. Whether man is at church worshiping God, whether he is at work digging a ditch, whether he's at home playing with the kids, he was made to reflect, 
to declare the glory of God in everything. God is to be the centerpiece of every area of our lives. It's all about Him. Everything is to revolve around our Maker. But what is equally true is that God made man to be happy, to enjoy Him forever. We were made to enjoy God. We were made to find pleasure in God, to experience real happiness in Him. The Lord did not make you or make me to be sad all the time and discouraged and downcast and depressed, but He made us to be happy. The scriptural term is blessed. What is so instructive is that God has intertwined our, our happiness with our glorifying Him. The more that you and I glorify Him, the more that you and I reflect His glory in every department of our life, the greater happiness we experience. And the more we enjoy the Lord in every department of life. Seems a very hard truth to really learn and to put into practice. Our own happiness is so intimately linked to glorifying the Lord. The wonderful thing is that the greater our enjoyment of the Lord, the greater our happiness is in God, the more we actually glorify God, the more we reflect the Lord's glory. Contrary-wise, the less we glorify the Lord in all things, the less enjoyment we have of Him, the less happiness we experience. And the unhappiness of God's people is certainly not a good reflection of the glory of the Lord. That, of course, leads us to this issue of what went wrong and why this world is so unhappy and why it does not glorify the Lord in its behavior. The simple answer to that, of course, is sin. When sin entered this human race through the fall of Adam, it robbed man of the joy that God gave to him at creation and his ability to not only enjoy the Lord and take pleasure in him, but to glorify God. And when he can't do that, you can't be happy. Because you see, happiness is holiness. And holiness is happiness. Holiness is God-likeness. Holiness is glorifying the Lord in our behavior. But when that is lost, guess what's going to happen? We're going to be miserable creatures. There's never happiness in sin. Pleasure for the flesh, yes. But not happiness. Not, we, we, we just weren't made that way. We can't find it. So you see... Man is on this quest to try to find happiness and joy in the very things that are going to be detrimental to any happiness and joy, that are actually destructive to happiness and joy. That's how God made us. We are the happiest when we're the holiest. We are the happiest when we're glorifying the Lord the most in every department of our life. That's just the nuts and bolts of how the Lord made us. But the fall, as our catechism points out, the fall brought man into an estate of sin and misery, where he has lost communion with God, is under his wrath and curse, and made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. 
That's the ultimate price to pay for rejecting God's only way of happiness. The good news is that God did not leave all of mankind to perish in that estate of sin and misery. He originally made man to glorify him and to enjoy him. And so he was determined that that is what some of mankind would end up doing. And the way wherein God would carry out his plan to bring man out from under the curse of sin and misery and enable him to enjoy the Lord and glorify him both in this life and in the life to come was through a redeemer a savior a deliverer a rescuer for God so loved he loved and that's not he loved the world so much that's not what the word so means there for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and so the people and Christ redeems by his atoning blood that was shed freely upon Calvary those people are called in both the Old and the New Testaments blessed happy but that this but is where our psalm comes in this evening Christ's people redeemed. Heaven is their home. <laughs> All of the promises of God that are yea and amen in Christ Jesus are theirs. They are Christ's and Christ is God's. All is theirs. Yet those very same people can be found very, very unhappy. Sometimes that unhappiness stems from trials and afflictions of all sorts. Their hearts are, you remember the words of Peter, made heavy through manifold temptations. All kinds. They can become discouraged because God in his wisdom and his providence leads them down difficult paths in life. But more times than not, more times than not, this unhappiness stems from that old corporate the Bible calls sin. Sin, sin, sin. So you and I both know from experience that sin and misery always walk hand in hand. It may be some great sin. It may be a bunch of little sins. But whether great or small, they have this awful power to steal away from the child of God his, his ability to reflect the glory of the Lord, to glorify God in every department of his life, and therefore his enjoyment of the Lord, his blessedness, his happiness. Sin just ruins that. And that makes sense. God made us that way. He just made us that way. I mean, if you can be perfectly happy and content in your sin, I've got serious questions about whether or not you've been saved at all. That's not what it means to be redeemed. To be redeemed is to be bought out of the slave market of sin. It's to be set free from bondage and misery. So if we can just keep carrying on with our sins and know nothing of, of the sadness and the remorse that sin brings to a child of God. I'm not just talking about the smiting of a, of a conscience with guilt. That's all part and parcel. But the misery that comes when a redeemed child of God sins, with a bunch of little sins that go unconfessed, whether it's some great fool, it makes no difference. If he's a child of God, it's going to bring him to sadness. And it's good it's like that. It should be like that. It must be like that. A child of God, he will always be, but that doesn't mean he will always be a happy child of God. The psalm 
before us tonight is about a time when one of God's choice, and I mean choice servants, lost his joy, and with it he lost his ability to glorify God because of sin. It's a wonderful gospel lesson in this psalm tonight, and from the first five verses of Psalm 32, I want to say a few things about when joy is lost because of sin. When joy is lost because of sin. When the source of your sadness is sin. Mark it now, not a day goes by when you and I, as the redeemed of God, do not sin. Not one day in your life will ever go by where you don't sin in thought, in some word that you utter, and in some deed that you engage in. We will never, ever, ever have a day this side of glory where that doesn't happen. So right now you understand that I'm not simply dealing with, well, we're in the flesh and we haven't been glorified yet. And yes, we don't love the Lord as we ought. We don't trust Him as we ought. We don't do this as we ought. No, that's not what I'm talking about now. It could be a great sin like that of David. It could be a whole lot of little things that you've just let go on and on and on and you know it's wrong and you haven't done anything about it. And you've lost joy. You can't really say, I know the joy of the Lord. There'd be no joy in your heart when you sang, Mine, 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 I know thou art mine. It's because of sin. First, four things I'm going to bring out. doesn't mean it's going to be long because I have four points. It's just four things I need to bring out of this passage. There's going to be a guilty conscience. Then we're going to turn to a great confession. Then there's going to be a gracious cleansing. And finally, a glad conclusion. So let's begin. A guilty conscience. Verse 3, first part. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. This time of silence, David's mentioning, would refer to that time when David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And it was the time before Nathan the prophet came to David and faced him with his sin of adultery and pointed a finger at him and said, You're the man. You're the guilty party. David had committed adultery with Uriah's wife, and he became the virtual murderer of Uriah in an attempt to cover up his sin. Nothing has changed, you know, from the very beginning. Adam and Eve wanted to cover up their sin. David does the same thing. Try to cover it up, because if you don't confess it, that's your other option. It's to cover it up, to try to cover it up. No one to know about it. It's all secret. Cover up. We know that the child that was born as a result of this adulterous affair was born before Nathan ever came to him. So for quite a number of months, David kept silent. He didn't say a word to God about this. He had sinned, and he had tried to hide his sin, to cover it up um, uh, with others, and in his own mind, he hoped that this, this deep conviction of sin in his soul would go away. He could just tamp it down. That with, with time, it would wear off doesn't do that, though. All the time in the world, if you're a child of God, all the time in the world is not going to wear off. He deceived himself into thinking that he would one day, well, I'll be able to forget about what I did. I can just move on. I can just move on. And you can't just move on. 
he was making this futile effort of trying to convince himself of a lie. And that's just how deceitful sin is. And that's why the reference in verse 2 is to a man in whose spirit there is no guile. Did you know that? In whose spirit that man is happy. In whose spirit there is... He's talking about himself. Because there was guile with David. There was The word means deceit or treachery. He was being treacherous to his own soul by trying to cover it up. Ignore it. It'll go away. He was feeling these awful pangs of a guilty conscience. I have no doubt that he woke up with it and he went to bed with it. It was only a thought away in his mind what he had done. Even after months and months and months of time passing. He must have come up, come up with a thousand and one reasons why he should not, did not need to confess his sin to God. Well, God knows what I did. Now, I, I'm one of his people after all. Why do I need to confess it? Why do I need to come to God and, and admit what I've done is wrong and ask forgiveness? He knows what I've done. He loves me. So he said nothing. But the shutting of his lips to confess his sin to God could not seal that constant cry out from his conscience. Notice how he describes it. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. His bones waxing old means that his physical strength was in decay. The guilt that he was feeling was actually affecting his body. He was wasting away to nothing. His appetite obviously was gone. And God took sleep and rest from him. I would dare say that David looked very, very haggard at this point in time in his life because of this. No appetite. No sleep. Guilty conscience. Hmm. You tell me there's no intimate link between our bodies and our souls, our minds, our spirits? He speaks of his roaring. Most often in the Old Testament... That word is used to refer to, to lions when they're hunting their prey. But it's also used to speak of the cry of distress from a soul that is really distraught. It's upset. David says, my soul is roaring. Job uh, chapter 3, verse 24, he says, For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. He was in anguish. It, it wasn't a, a roaring that anyone else heard, but David heard it loud and clear. In Psalm 22, verse 1, that's a messianic psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. A soul. I need to point out that you may cry out in bitter anguish of soul because of a guilty conscience. But that can be done without any crying out of confession to sin to God. David was roaring, all right. His soul was in bitter agony and crying out, Oh, this agony, oh, this, this awful state I'm in. But there wasn't a roaring to God. There wasn't a crying to God for cleansing and for forgiveness. 
Hosea chapter 7 verse 14 where the Lord is describing Israel crying out for the hand of God's judgment upon them because of their idolatry. They're crying out. Listen to what he says. They have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. Oh, they were howling upon their beds, but they weren't crying out to me in repentance of their sin. They didn't like the judgment. They didn't like the misery being brought upon them because of their sin, but it wasn't any because of sadness what they had done against God. Matthew Henry comments there, they would rather pine away in their iniquities than to take the method which God has appointed of finding rest for their souls. They would rather pine away in their iniquities. And this, this awful grief of a guilty conscience was continual we find in this psalm he says all the day long there was no let up verse 4 for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me it was the remembrance of what he had done that kept troubling David and God kept reminding him of what he had done the Lord wasn't going to let it go Time gave him no reprieve. He thought it would, but it gave him no ease from the guilt and misery. John Calvin said, How long it is ere men recover themselves when once they have fallen, and also how slow they are to obey until God redouble their stripes and increase them from day to day. How slow till the Lord doubles the stripes. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I'm like a plant that's dried up and withered away because of the heat and the drought of the summer sun. I, I want you just to step back now and take a look at, at King David. This was the young shepherd boy taken from the hills where he tended his father's sheep. Beloved by God, made the king of Israel mighty in battle, slain his tens of thousands, would stand up against Goliath with five stones and a sling, afraid of no one. So the sweet psalmist of Israel pens his glorious psalms to the Lord. Now look at him. Gaunt, sickly, afraid, the lines of his face just marked by sorrow. I'd almost think that if someone had seen David when he was right with God and the blessing of the Lord upon his life and then didn't see David until now would hardly recognize him. You couldn't imagine anyone more unhappy he knew what it was to be full of joy. But now he knows what it is to be full of sadness. Whatever emotions he might have gone through in all of his religious worship, they're nothing more than that. They're just motions. This is like going to church, you know. You, you go through the motions. You, you do the things that you're supposed to do, but they're empty. And you can't sing with any joy in your soul. The Word of God brings you no happiness, no rest. The facade that you put on is 
just that. It's a facade. Behind the mask, you know, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm living. I'm living in a way that is displeasing to Him. And I know better. A guilty conscience has taken away any sense of being blessed. And the only thing you can think of with regards to God is, He's angry with me, and He is against me. And such is the story of every child of God who does not carefully, consciously, continually, seriously confess his sins to God. Doesn't have to be some of these great immoral sins like adultery. It's just letting sins go by unconfessed. not keeping a short account with God. If we confess our sins, the word if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If. But if we don't, if there is no confession, maybe... I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to regularly confess sins of ignorance. There was a sacrifice in the Old Testament for sins of ignorance. Sins that we're not even aware that we've committed because either we don't know the Scriptures well enough to know, well, that was a trans, we haven't grown enough to know. But there's sin nonetheless. Isn't it something that God had a specific sacrifice for sins of ignorance? It wasn't just a case of, well, they didn't know. I'm going to pass on that. No, no. An animal had to be slain. And the blood had to be shed for sins that the people committed and they didn't even realize it. Pointing the fact out that Jesus Christ had to shed his blood for every one of our sins, sins that we were ignorant of. If we confess our sins. Christians who are living in a backslidden state have not done that. The backsliding could last for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. But still, if there's not been this confession of sin, there's something between your soul and the Lord. There's, there's a barrier that's been raised. There's a breakdown. That's what Jesus, exactly what he meant when he told Peter, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you're not going to have fellowship with me. You're not going to have, you're not going to walk close with me. I wonder, child of God, how much of a lack of an enjoyment of a close walk with God is due to those very things. David knew right well what his sin was that was causing his soul all this trouble. And so do you if you're a child of God. If, if you have willfully neglected the means of grace, then you know right well the reason your conscience plagues you. If you have been 
engaging in some sinful habit, then you know what you've been trying to conceal, and therefore the Lord's hand will be heavy upon you. If you have been looking at things on your television or on the internet or whatever the media source might be that you have absolutely no business looking at, you know your conscience is telling you plainly that you have lost your joy because you've sinned against the Lord. A guilty conscience. But now there is, in the second place, a good confession. When you've lost your joy through sin, the first step in getting it back to happiness again is through a good confession. So, verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. How do you get back the joy that you've lost through holding on to sin and trying to hide them or trying to excuse them? At the end of the day, folks, it's all nothing more than Adam and Eve in the garden. It's all a big attempt to cover it up. To cover it up. And you and I try to keep covering it up, whether it's through excuses or delay or whatever. That's all a cover-up. We're not going to be happy. What we need is a good confession. Good confession. How do you get it back? Well, number one, purpose in your heart. Purpose in your heart to confess your sin. Verse 5, David said, I said, I will confess my transgressions. Those are words of a heart and a mind that are fixed to get things right with God. There was this holy resolution in God's heart. Pardon the personal reference, but I was there as a young man of about 21 years of age, I had spent three years of my life saved as a boy of about 13, 12 years old at the time period. That, and then high school, out of high school for three years, it was drugs, it was alcohol, it was a whole bowl of wax. And you talk about someone who was miserable, unhappy. The drugs couldn't fix it. Oh, you get a temporary high. Takes your mind off of it, but you come back to reality when that high wears off. And you're so miserable. So unhappy. And you make everybody else unhappy. Well, at the end of that three years, when the Lord said, this is it, no more, you're going no further. This life of rebellion against me is over. I'm bringing you back. Marin and I were talking the other day over something, lunch or whatever it was in the car, I can't remember, but telling him about that time when what happened. This unsaved professor who had been counseling me for a year using Freudian psychology because he saw I was so sad, I was so upset, I was so messed up, trying to help me. And then telling him my story, he learned about my past life and my minister. And after the year, he said to me, I can, I can remember to this day in that classroom, in that empty classroom, I think you, go need, you need to go talk to your pastor, Pastor Lou. And I just bolted out of that classroom, didn't want to hear that. And I ran down the stairs of that basement, the men's bathroom, and I sat on the floor. I don't know how long I sat there. But it was like the Lord was saying to me, it's done. No more. You get up there and tell him to arrange a meeting with the pastor. I don't know how long I had been there, but I went upstairs and he was still sitting in that room waiting for me. I said, would you call Pastor Bradley? From that point on, I was determined. My heart was fixed. 
I would acknowledge my sin to the Lord. I went home, the drugs went down the toilet, the paraphernalia was broken to pieces so no one else could use it, the rock and roll music went in the trash can. And I was happy. For the first time in three years, I knew joy. You must purpose in your heart to confess your sin. To confess your sin is simply to agree with God. This is sin. I give it no other name. This is rebellion. This is contrary to thy will. It was akin, you might say, to the words of the prodigal son in Luke 15 when he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned. He purposed in his heart. Not only must you purpose in your heart to confess your sin, but you must deal honestly with yourself and with God. You must deal honestly with yourself and with God. David had been dishonest. He had told himself many lies about his sin. He had sought to justify his sin. He would not be open and honest with the Lord about how he had been living and what he had done. But now David condemned his sin, which he had sought to conceal. Cover-up is over now. It's over. He no longer makes excuses for it. He quit trying to paint what he had done in a better light, that it really wasn't such an evil thing. Now he calls sin, sin. Notice his words. Now he says, my iniquity. That word means perversity, depravity. It's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You contrast that with the response of Adam and Eve when they were faced with their sin in the garden. Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree I told you not to eat of? Well, well, the woman you gave me. Eve, have you eaten of the... Well, the serpent, he did beguile me and I did eat. It's a blame game. You know you're not dealing honestly with yourself and with God when you are blaming someone else upon your sin. When you are blaming your circumstances in life upon your sin. It's my perversity. It's my iniquity. I've no one to blame but myself. This is my doing. I've sinned against God. I've displeased Him. I've broken His law. He wasn't saying, I, 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 I blame Bathsheba. There she was bathing out there. In the... uh, no, it's not Bathsheba's fault. This is my sin and mine alone. Do you realize how frequently excuses like this are made for sin? Blaming somebody else. You can blame your children, you can blame your parents, you can blame people at church. It's utter hellish nonsense. You own it. You own it. You've no one to blame but yourself. I've no one to blame but myself. 
Yeah, it was a pretty rough childhood. Father with mental illness. Very, very quiet. Hardly talked boo to us as kids. It's not my dad's fault. Not my mom's. Not my siblings. It was me. I'm the guilty one. Anything else other than that is dishonesty. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. And that's not a good confession. It doesn't restore the happiness. It doesn't restore the joy that's been lost because of the sin. When you are... You say, how, preacher, how, how do I know if I'm really being honest with the Lord and with myself? When you're dealing honestly with your sin and with God, you will long to have your heart searched and probed. There'll be no room in your, in your soul that you won't want the Lord to enter and to ransack. You just go ahead, Lord... And expose it all. I am not wanting to hide anything at all. Because I know if I try to hide anything. I know what's going to happen. I know where it's going to lead me. And I'm not going to have a restoration of joy. And I'll not be able to enjoy thee. And glorify thee. No, what you'll do. You'll give him the keys, so to speak. To every door you've had locked. Lord, here's the keys. You just go ahead and go on in. Because I am here to honestly confess all of my sin. You want nothing hidden. You don't want anything glossed over. Nothing swept under the rug. And when the Lord searches and says, you say, Lord, I'm guilty. I am guilty as charged. That's sin. That's a good confession. Other than that, you're just playing with the Lord. And you're playing with your own soul. You're continuing to deceive yourself. You'll never get to a good confession. Thirdly, be specific and thorough in your confession. It's not just that, Lord, I've sinned. It's getting downright specific and particular in it. Confess the, the, the wickedness of sin. Don't make light of it, but tell the Lord, I have done wickedly. Wicked. I have acted wickedly. This is wickedness. I'm glad that the old saying, or new saying, really has passed away, I think. But it really annoyed me when it was a positive thing if someone said, that's wicked. As if it was good. Never relate anything good to the word wicked. You confess to the Lord. You deserve all the misery this sin has brought into your life. And the fact is, you say, Lord, I deserve much worse than this. What I deserve, Lord, are the miseries of hell forever. That's what I would deserve. That's, that's what I deserve. Matthew Henry said, we must confess our sin with shame and holy blushing, with fear and holy trembling. And I would add with broken heartedness. 
In his commentary on this psalm, Spurgeon said, There are too many who make confession, having no broken hearts, no streaming eyes, no flowing tears, no humbled spirits. Know ye this, that ten thousand confessions, if they are made by hardened hearts, if they do not spring from really contrite spirits, shall be only additions to your guilt, as they are mockeries before the Most High. So I say, be thorough and specific on your confessions. Third thought I have tonight is a gracious cleansing. A gracious cleansing. The last half of verse 6, David says, After I confessed, acknowledge my sin, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. I, I am so sad in the sense that too often, too often we can take the forgiveness of sin so for granted. It's something wonderful that the grace of God overflows the guilt of our sin. All the time. All the time. Notice how though David was so long in getting to that point of confessing his sin, God was not so long in forgiving him. Months he went on. But God didn't wait months before he said, I forgive you. He didn't say, eh, took you long enough to get here. I'm just going to make you stew for a while. As soon as he confessed... He knew the Lord forgave me. Notice how he knew that. He knew it. There wasn't any voice from heaven saying, I forgive you. He knew God. And he knew the gospel. He knew the truth. He knew what John wrote about years, thousands of years later, 1 John 1, 9. He knew that. His forgiveness was immediate. Forgiven. That's quite a thought, you know, in the Old and New Testament. And in fact, in both words, whether Hebrew or Greek, it has the same idea. To take away or to bear away. Forgiven. God laid hold of David's sin. And that sin was a great weight on David's heart, causing him all this grief, all this sadness, all this inability to glorify God. And God just laid a hold of it. And he took that sin. This is all just beautiful poetry here. He just cast it as far as the east is from the west. What was the ground for such a kindness to this adulterer, to this murderer? Was it his confession? Was it his honest and broken confession that deserved God's mercy? Not on your life. David had been trying to cover up his sin. Mind you, his sin needed to be covered, but not by David. Sin is not taken away by mere confession, folks. Never has been and it never will be. Sin cannot be taken away by merely confessing it. Sin can only be taken away if it's punished. Now you come back to verses 1 and 2. To understand why God forgave David his sin. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. For God not to impute David's sin to David, it had to be imputed to somebody else. And that someone else was God's Son, Jesus Christ. 
God took that sin off of David and placed it on Jesus Christ. That was the whole ground of the basis. The covering that David needed was the covering of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. That's the only covering that will deal with the sin. Confession is useless if there's not an imputation of the sin to someone else. Confession is useless if the sin is not truly covered. All you're doing is acknowledging, I've sinned. Oh, forgive me. Forgive you. On what basis do I forgive you? You've broken the law. You've sinned against me. You've rebelled against me. On what basis do I forgive you, God asks. Well, because I confessed and I'm sorry for it. But wait a minute, wait a minute. You can be sorry all day long for it. But that doesn't undo what you've done. That doesn't reverse your crimes against me. And all of my love, which is infinite, that won't fix the problem. Because while I am a God of infinite love, I am a God of infinite justice. And sin I will punish. Sin I will punish. Now you've sinned against me. You've done it deliberately. You tried to cover it up. You gave it some other name. Now you come confessing. And I forgive you. Because I've taken your son and laid it on my son, Jesus Christ. You tried to cover it. I reject your covering. The only covering I have for your sin is the blood of my son. When it's under the blood, it's covered. Daily cleansing, daily cleansing, daily cleansing. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, there's imputation, the iniquity of us all. finally there's a glad result blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven blessed literally all the happiness is to such a man his transgression is forgiven he went from the depths of misery and grief and continual sadness. Now he's on the mountaintop of peace and joy. He came to God in faith, believing that the Lord would hear his confession and believing that God would forgive his sin based upon the shed blood. So read Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He knew, he knew the ground of his forgiveness. He had put his hope in the mercy of God and he wasn't disappointed. How happy David is now. His peace and his joy has been restored because he confessed his sin to God. How much happier you and I would be if we just kept these short accounts with God. Instead of letting them go on and on and on. Is it going to be a happy week for you? You're going to be joyful? Or are you going to be sad? 
you are made to be happy and to glorify God. Sin is the thing like nothing else that ruins that. Keep short accounts. Daily, daily. Confess. A good confession. God read His Word on our hearts for His namesake. Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we come at the end of another Sabbath day saying it's been good to be in the house of God. We thank Thee for feeling the power of Thy truth upon our souls. We thank Thee for every ounce of conviction of sin Thou hast ever given us and ever will give us. We know, Lord, that Thou art a God who still cleanses the hearts of Thy people from sin. Oh, Father, we pray for that continual grace to be given to us and that we would have our hearts purposed and fixed that we will keep these short accounts with Thee. Surely, Lord, the other end of the spectrum is to go the other way. We want to glorify Thee and we want to enjoy Thee. So, Lord, by the Holy Ghost and by the good news of Jesus Christ, keep us walking in those happy and holy paths of righteousness. And when we err, may Thy Spirit come at that very moment to convict us and we would cry out to Thee, Lord, forgive me. For Jesus' sake, in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.